Alright, well if you have a Bible this morning, we're in Nehemiah uh, chapter 4. We started a couple of weeks ago uh, in a series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, we're in week 3 of that series. And um, I was thinking how to set up um, today's message. And um, the best way I can liken to this part of Nehemiah that we're about to enter into in chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's kind of like um, if, you've, if you've flown much in an airplane, um, uh, and if you get used to flying after a while, if you've flown, if you've flown a lot, um, you get to a point, um, and I could do this when I was, when I was flying a lot. Now, I don't really like to fly anymore, but, um, at one time it seemed fun and new, and now it just seems like, you know, a horrible, horrible idea to, anyway, but, you, but I got to a place where I could get in the airplane, and before it took off, I was asleep, and I would wake up about the time the wheels touched down. It was just like automatic, right? And so, and when you're on a long flight, if you've ever been on a long flight, and you're, you're asleep, and then you're reading, and you're doing different things, after a while, after a couple of hours, you kind of forget that you're even on an airplane. Unless... <laughs> unless you're a big chicken. Um, unless you encounter this thing called turbulence. Right, and nobody likes turbulence, and it's caused by various r- reasons and all that sort of stuff. But uh, one of the things that causes turbulence is when you're in the jet stream and the wind is moving at uh, you know a certain speed, but then on the edges it encounters like a slower uh, moving wind, and it causes this turbulence in the wind. And so they liken it to a bump in the road. That in a sense, even though you're in the air, it's like you're in, in a highway, and then all of a sudden there's a little speed bump there. It's turbulence. It's so all of a sudden the ride gets a little rocky, and it's when you encounter turbulence. When you're in an airplane, if you've forgotten that you were in an airplane, now you're very well aware that you're 10,000 or however many feet in the air and that you are going a couple of hundred miles per hour in a giant metal tube. And so, in a chair in the sky. So, um, and you're very well alert to those things, right? Uh, once the turbulence happens. Well, in Nehemiah, the first three chapters are very smooth sailing for Nehemiah. He's probably forgotten to an extent that he has um, encountered that he's doing something that's supposed to be very hard. Um, in Nehemiah chapter 1, he begins burdened about the idea, if you're new with us this week, that the walls were down in the city of Jerusalem. Now this is something that had happened over a hundred years ago uh, when Jerusalem was ransacked um, by the Babylonians and taken siege and you had the great... Um, Captivity, Babylonian captivity that took place. And over that time, there's been some different things that have happened. And, and, and in Nehemiah's lifetime, one of the things that had happened was they, they had begun to rebuild uh, they had the temple and, and started on the walls. And then the king at that time um, decided it should stop because, well, some people started a, a rumor that, that, that the Jews were going to rebel if they got this to happen. So some, some enemies in the area who were jealous of the Jews didn't want them to see this rebuild this wall. They, they talked the king into stopping this building. And so um, they didn't get to finish the rebuilding of the walls. And it's very possible that anything they had built that they had completely torn down because as we pick up a Nehemiah 1, that's the situation. The walls are down. And Nehemiah becomes very burdened when he hears about this. He had a lot, had a lot of hope. They had begun, begun uh, uh, over the last 70 years that some different people had, repo- had begun to repopulate in small segments the, the city of Jerusalem. Um, some building had started. So there, there was this hope maybe that in a sense revival was coming to Jerusalem because they wanted Jerusalem to be healthy. They wanted, it, they want, they wanted to be in a position. Temple worship was back, right? They wanted to be in a position uh, to receive their king, ultimately, the Messiah to come that they were looking forward to. And Nehemiah is very distraught when he hears this. And he's broken and he has this great burden for the glory of God and for the good of God's people to see these walls rebuilt so that God's people are no longer living in shame and, and, and being, bringing ill repute upon the name of God. And so he goes to the king, the very king, who had said you can't build the walls. And he goes to him. He's the cupbearer to the king, right? He's basically a professional wine taster. Um, but on this side of that, it's if the wine, if he tastes it and something's wrong with it, Nehemiah dies um, because he's testing it for poison. But it's actually a pretty uh, high position with the king and a very trusted position. And so he's going and he's he's going, he's got this leverage with the king and he has to decide if he's willing to put his job on the line, so to speak, to help his people, the Jews. And so he goes to the king, surrenders everything after praying to the Lord, and he goes to the king and he asks the king if he can go back and lead the effort to rebuild the walls. The very king that had said the walls cannot be finished. And so he lays everything on the line to do that. And the king says yes. 
And so the king says yes. He, he gives him letters to go and take to the surrounding regions, the surrounding governors, so they'll know not to mess with him. And that the king had authorized this. And then he goes and he, he scopes out the situation. He rallies the people we saw last week that were there in Jerusalem. And they begin to build, we see in chapter 3, which is like this big climactic moment where everybody's together as one team laying brick upon brick. The big hurrah moment. Woohoo! Everything's great. In chapter 3 would be a great way to just end the book of Nehemiah and it wouldn't be any longer than like the book of Jonah. And it's like, and that's how you do it, folks. But we know life doesn't work that way. In chapter 4, they hit turbulence. <laughs> and it's what we call in the Christian life, and what is, is, is coined here, it's, it's opposition. Uh, they hit opposition. And they're going to begin to hit opposition for the next three chapters. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, they, they, they hit one kind in chapter 4, and hit opposition, one kind of turbulence in chapter 4 and chapter 6, and another kind wedge in the middle in chapter 5. So we're going to look at the opposition this morning, and how they had to build these walls amidst opposition. The next week, we're going to come back and look at the internal things that were going on within the very community of faith that were going to hold them back if they didn't deal with them. But in chapter 4 and chapter 6, so we're going to kind of look at chapter 4, look at chapter 6, and some things out of that this morning to see what was going on to bring about this opposition. Because if you're going to be a Christian who lives not for yourself, but seeks first the kingdom of God, just as Nehemiah was doing as a, as a follower of God in the Old Testament, he was seeking to advance God's kingdom in his day. And for him, that meant rebuilding these walls. If we're going to be those types of people in our day, on this side of the fact that Christ has come and we're waiting for Him to come again, you need to know you're going to face opposition. You're going to face a lot of opposition. And by opposition, let me define that for you this morning. I mean anything that can throw you off track from obeying God and fulfilling His purpose for your life. So that's a lot of things. So just anything that can throw you off track. And it comes to us in various ways we're going to see this morning. And you'll never be more aware that the Christian life is not a cakewalk, but is in fact a spiritual war zone, than when you encounter opposition of various types. It wakes you up, so to speak, and makes you aware of what's going on and actually what's at stake. Now, if you're not a Christian today, you face opposition in life as well. Your goals may be different, and you may view opposition as things that keep you from, uh, from achieving your personal goals. Because maybe you have different goals. Christians are supposed to have the goal to please the Lord and to advance His kingdom and to submit ourselves to Him and to accomplish His will. But even non-Christians face their own opposition. In fact, many times you may run up against the opposition of the Lord Himself who is trying to detour and reroute your life to get you in line with His will and His purpose for your life. But I do want you to hear today, if you're not a Christian, the, the clear advertisement, for lack of a better term, for Christianity today is this. It is no cakewalk. Coming to Christ doesn't automatically, quote-unquote, make your life easier. It's not the way it works at all. And many times your life gets harder after you come to know the Lord. And so let's look at how Nehemiah and Israel encountered and dealt with opposition and how we too can live victoriously amidst opposition as we seek to advance God's kingdom. Now, we're going to read a lot of text this morning. I debated on whether to read all the text and finally decided, you know, um, or whether to read portions of it, but this is just so good, and I know Nehemiah can tell it better than I can. So we're going to read in big chunks, and then we'll stop. I'll explain a little bit, and we'll work our way through it that way, and we'll have our takeaway. So look with me in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, it's with you on the screen. Bear with me, as I will be pronouncing some names, as I said last week, that I don't usually pronounce, because I'm from Alabama, and these are Hebrew names, and I'm not Hebrew. Okay, now, when San now when Sanballat, heard that they were, they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. Now we've seen this guy earlier that he was upset and now he's really angry because the wall has actually begun. The building's actually begun. Verse 2, And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Well, they reviled the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that. Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, yes, what, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now, let's pause for a second. Why is this Sanballat 
angry. It's because they're building again. He, he was probably one of the ones that helped stop the building in the first place years before. And now it's again happening, and this time the king's got the blessing, right? And it served Samballot to have the Jews, this other, this bordering nation, so to speak, um, Weak and vulnerable to him for anything he might want to do uh, with, with <laughs> to the surrounding nations. And so now all of a sudden the wall's going up. It's going up with the king's permission. He's very angry. And they begin to mock. What are these feeble Jews doing? In other words, you can't do this. You don't have the manpower to do this. And they were a feeble bunch at this particular time. Will they sacrifice? In other words, is, do you really expect your religious devotion and your God to help you? Will they finish up in a day? In other words, you'll never be able to finish this. Will they revive the burned stones? and the, 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 these, these stones, they're, they're worthless. I mean, it's, it's been torn down and burned down. They're actually going to try to reuse these stones. He's just doing everything he can to just kind of uh, rally against this as he, as he begins to kind of get the enemies together to kind of mock what's going on. It's just pure hatred, really, that's being spewed and mockery that's being spewed. And it's getting back to the Jews because it's getting back to Nehemiah. Because How do I know it got back to him? Because he wrote it down. And we have it these many years later. In verse 3, Tobiah, the Ammonite, he's like the little sidekick that just won't shut up, right? He's, I want in, right? And he gets in and he says, yeah, the wall they built so weak, if a fox jumped up on it, it would just fall down. They're not even good at this. They're, they're a weak people. And Nehemiah, we see in verse 4, begins to pray. And what's he praying for? He prays for justice. He's not praying against their salvation when he says, you know, let not their sin be blotted out. It's a prayer that they would not get away with their sin. He's praying for God to simply do what God has already said He would do in the Old Testament. To not let the wicked get away with their wicked deeds. That's the prayer of Nehemiah. And you can pray for the salvation of the wicked and you can pray for justice in the world. And it's kind of like, when you read this, you think, well, okay, what's, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is a heart cry for justice. It's a heart cry for God to do what God has said He's going to do and for wickedness not to prevail and for justice to prevail. And so when you think about this, you think, well, how do we pray for groups like ISIS? or ISIL, or whatever you want to call them, who are in other parts of the, of the world, and Christians are being beheaded and, and burned and all these horrible things. How do you pray for that group? Are you supposed to pray for their salvation? Absolutely you should pray for their salvation. Jesus said pray for your enemies. Is it okay to pray for justice and for that to come to an end? Absolutely you pray for justice and for that to come to an end. It's not either or, it's both and. Is how we pray for it. We pray for justice. We pray for God to put an end to it. And we pray for salvation. We do pray for both of those things. And in verse 6, we see not only did they pray, they continued to build. They prayed and then they acted. And then in verse 7, we pick up. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the... <coughs> excuse me. And Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Now, so the enemies didn't give up. The rumors have gotten out about their taunting and all that. That didn't intimidate enough. And so, when you resist opposition, it doesn't always eliminate the opposition. A lot of times the opposition comes back and this time it escalates. And it comes back in terms of verbal attack. is now turned into physical attack. Or the threat of physical attack. And we see again, the response was prayer and action. They prayed and then they acted. And then in verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So, let's put off for a second. The people are getting discouraged. One commentary I read pointed out that this is written in such a way, verse 10, where it says, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much trouble. By ourselves we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. That that actually is written in such a way that it could be a song. This may have actually been something they were singing as they built the wall. So it's, they're so down, they're singing like sad, depressing Hebrew country music at this point, is what this is. <laughs> Very discouraged. And Nehemiah now realizes that there's a physical threat 
And there's also a threat to the morale of the people. And because the people are losing faith, they're more vulnerable to the attack. So what does Nehemiah do? He responds. In verse 13, he puts the people in the most vulnerable parts of the wall with weapons to defend themselves against an attack. He's using common sense. And then in verse 14, he gives the pep talk. This is last week we saw them all come together. They put their hands in, at the beginning of the game and they said, one, two, three, team, or one, two, three, win. This is the halftime talk. People are tired. People are weary. People are discouraged. And Nehemiah's about to, to light a fire in the room and try to encourage them a little bit and get them riled up, right? This is, if you're, this speech here. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. Fight for your brothers. This is, if you're making Nehemiah the movie, this is where Russell Crowe wins the Oscar, right? I mean, this is straight out of a movie line, right? I mean, this is good stuff. This isn't about a wall, is what he's saying. There's a lot more at stake on, over, than architecture. This is about your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister and the people that want to kill them. This is about your God that you need to remember. This is, this is real stuff, is what Nehemiah is saying. And he's awakening them to watch really at stake. And then in verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, God frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Now, the plans of the enemy have been frustrated by God at this point, and the people went back to work. And another theme begins to arise within Nehemiah. We see a theme of him always praying and planning. We also see a theme of just, they just keep working. No matter what happens, they just keep working. And in verse 16, Nehemiah has a plan from this time on. They would no longer be caught off guard again by these threats. And so here we see a picture of God's people who are serving. They're both servants and soldiers. They've got a tool in one hand to go build a wall, and they've got a a weapon or a sword in the other hand to defend themselves against attack. They are ready. And they have a very innate, a very... um, um, a very detailed plan. Half the group's going to do this. Half's going to build the wall. And oh, by the way, if you're building the wall, in one hand you're going to hold a weapon, in one hand you're going to hold a brick, right? If you're if you're somebody who's going and you're actually putting the wall together, you've got to have both hands, so you're going to have your sword on your side. So there's a very distinct plan. And by the way, when you when you hear, because we're all spread out around this wall, it'd be real easy for them to get through at one point. So Nehemiah's going to run around with a guy with a trumpet, and we see something happening, he's going to blow the trumpet, and that means you come to that place, and God will fight for us there. And so there are very intense plans we see happening here. And we see they persevered. And Nehemiah sets the example. It says him and his people, the, the, troop, the group that was with him, he said they didn't even take off their clothes. He said, we, I mean, we were just... It doesn't mean they just never slept, but his point was we, we were fully 100% devoted to this morning and night in shifts. We were watching this wall and seeing that it got built. He is sold out to what's happening. And then in chapter 6, if you go over a few pages, we'll come back to chapter 5 next week, we see that now the wall is built. There's nothing left but gates and doors to put on. And Sanballat, goodness gracious, he's back at it again. Because the opposition just won't stop. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the, the Arab and the rest of our enemies, heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sembalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakkerfirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing, I'm doing, a, great, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it alone and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. 
So these two guys feel the victory starting to slip away. Uh, the gates and the doors, all that, the gates with the doors are about to go up. And so the victory starting to slip away. So they say, well, we're going to go directly after Nehemiah. If we can take him out, we can pull him aside, get him by himself, and we kill him, the work might just fall apart right here because they won't have a leader. In verse 5, in the same way, Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, say, No such thing as you have, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they, are, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So Sam Ballot sends an open letter. Now why is that? Well, because people that were passing it along to get it to Nehemiah could read it and the rumor would spread faster. So he sends it open. He doesn't seal it with anything so it was private between him and Nehemiah. He wants people to read it. It's like putting it in the newspaper and saying, hey, take a copy of this to Nehemiah. So it spreads throughout the land. He's trying to start this, this rumor that would incite fear because, oh no, they, they think we're rebelling. They think we're trying to set up our own kingdom and they think Nehemiah wants to be king and the Persian king is going to come against us now. That's the rumor he's trying to set up. Nehemiah refutes the law. And he knew that they wanted the people of God to be afraid. It was a form of intimidation through lying and slandering the name of Nehemiah. And once again we see Nehemiah pray. Strengthen my hands, Lord. Verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who, wa- who wanted to make me afraid. So it would hurt Nehemiah in the eyes of the people if he ran away and hid. He's been encouraging them to fight. To trust God to fight for them. So it wouldn't look very good if he's, if he cuts and runs, right? Not only that, we're going to see he's not allowed to go into the temple. And so it would make him a coward, a hypocrite, and, and hurt his relationship with the Lord as well. And so it probably cause him to die. And they're using what may be a priest. We're not really sure who this character is. He kind of, it's the only time he's mentioned, but some believe he's a priest. And he's operating as a kind of a false prophet. He's saying he's speaking for God, but he's lying. And that's how you know a false prophet. They say things that God, saying God says things that God doesn't actually say, right? And so, what does Nehemiah do? He prays. Once again. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of the law in 52 days. 52 days is quite a project to accomplish in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So they finished the work. These weak Jewish people who had been scattered for really about a, over a century have now rebuilt their wall. And now the nations are afraid. They're remembering stories that they've heard about this group of people and their God, and now they're seeing a present day story play out in front of them. So what do we learn from the stories of Sambalat and the opposition that came against Nehemiah and the Jewish people? And what does that have to do with us today? Well, we learn a lot about how we should face opposition. And so the first thing I want you to see, first takeaway is kingdom-minded people will face continual opposition as they do God's will. It's just reality. It's the reality of continual opposition as we live for the Lord. Uh, it was continual. I mean, we got two chapters worth we just read through. Time and again we see this opposition come against Nehemiah. And why didn't it stop? Because the wall kept going up. As long as the wall was going up, the opposition, the opposition wasn't rearing its head until the wall started to go up. And Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem, all these enemies continued to attack because the people continued to build. The opposition started in chapter 4, verse 1. It continued in chapter 4, verse 7. Then in chapter 6, we see when they see their window closed and they come directly after Nehemiah. There was no opposition until there was progress. But then when there was progress, there was a lot of opposition. I like it at this, you know. Um, I've been watching all these, you know, we're in a presidential election season, and that's fun, isn't it? It's a lot of fun. 
makes you know, I mean learn a lot about a lot of things when you watch these things. I enjoy watching sometimes some of these debates and stuff like that. And I've always enjoyed following these election seasons. And uh, the crazy thing to me is how these people, they'll, even within their own parties, they'll start saying things about each, each other. And then after, you know, they win, the, uh, their, their, their person wins, whoever, whatever their party is, those same people that, ran, that, that hated them and said they were the worst people in the world, then they're the best people in the world, the only cure for America, right? And they'll even run, sometimes run on the same ticket with them. It's crazy how that happens. But they'll attack one another. And they'll go after one another, back and forth. And one thing I've noticed, in 35, almost 36 years of life now, not one single time have I ever had a candidate personally attack me. Never has happened. They've never ran an ad against me. I've never clicked on the internet, went to a news website, and seen a 30-second ad against Josh Malone and why he shouldn't be president. Because I'm not running, right? I'll see him against all the other candidates, right? You'll see him against uh, Ted Cruz or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Marco Rubio or Bernie Sanders. I'm naming them all from both parties, all right? No favoritism here. And whoever. Ben Carson, right? Whoever. I think there's all kinds of people running that I don't even know their names, right? You'll see all, all of them have these things, you know, this person's horrible. Here's why. This person's horrible. But your name's not out there. Unless one of you are in the audience today. Um, my name's not out there. It's because we're not in the election. Right? They are only going after people in the race. And in the same way, opposition only comes against us when we're in the game, when we're advancing the kingdom, when we're... It happens when you become a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a church gets on the right track and doing the will of God, there will be opposition. When you start putting your life together and following the Lord and trusting and following Christ, there will be opposition because we're at war. And Nehemiah was doing more than building a wall. This was about God's glory. This was about God's people. This was about God's kingdom. It's about God's will. And there was going to be opposition in a fallen, sinful world. Just as there is today. And these men are opposing God's people here. But understand something. There is a spiritual war that is going on. We see it in people like Samballot and Geshem and these names that appear, these people coming against them. But listen to what Ephesians 6.12 tells us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, sometimes spiritual battles take place in the context of human relationships. They do. You say, you say I don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but this one's got a name, Josh. <laughs> I mean, I get that. Sometimes it happens in the context of human relationships that might rise up against you. I, I, I get that. You, you look out over in the Middle East, use the extreme example, and we see ISIS beheading Christians, and those are real people. I get that. But it's a spiritual battle. They are, they are pawns of Satan. And we have to understand that there is a spiritual war that's taking place underneath all of this. And that Satan will use people and people won't even know they're being used by Satan. Sometimes he'll even use well-meaning people. But at the end of the day, you have to understand there is a spiritual battle. Because the moment you became a believer, you got three new enemies. The first one's called the world. This is why 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Don't love the world. That doesn't mean don't love the planet. That's not an excuse to go out and like, you know, throw some tin cans out on the highway. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean you can't love that person that you don't like. That's not what it means either. It's the world system. It's the anti-God, satanic way of the world. It's, it's the tide. Many times it shows itself up in cultures and things like that. It's the tide of selfishness and the man-centered view of things that rises its head. Against the kingdom of God. It's, the, it, it's, it's that system that he says do not love. The system that promotes the love of money and the love of power and those sort of things. Not only that, you develop the second enemy and that's the flesh. The flesh, that's the part of you that still, if you're a believer, still wants to sin. That's still lulled, that fills the current, that fills the tide pulling you back in towards the world. That part of you is now your enemy. You say, it wasn't my enemy before. No, the Bible teaches before you walked in the flesh. You were given to the flesh. You were led by the desires of the flesh. But now you're led by the Spirit. And so the flesh is your enemy. And so there was no struggle and no fight before. You were given to it. And now you also have a third enemy, and that's the devil. That's the devil. The Bible teaches that before Christ, unbelievers are held captive by the devil to do his will. But the moment you're born into the family of God and God stamps his name on you, Satan sets his mind to destroy you. The Bible says the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to wipe the very memory of you from the face of the earth. He has no love for you. And so you've got those three enemies. 
And we have to realize that, that those enemies are always there no matter what's going on in our life. So we have to beware of what I call karma Christianity. That's the whole, you know, you do enough good things, good things happen to you. You do enough bad things, bad things happen to you. So when something bad's going on in my life, boy, I must not be living right. That's karma. That's not Christianity. That's not our religion. That's not our deal. Do we believe you can reap what you sow? Yes, absolutely you reap what you sow. There's a general principle in life about that. But sometimes you don't reap until many years later. Sometimes you don't reap until eternity. Sometimes we sow in this life and we don't see a lot of the fruit of it until heaven. We don't believe in karma and and those sorts of things. And so... The disciples in the New Testament, for example, got their act together finally. Everything began to click and they're like, okay, we get it. Jesus is the Messiah. He came to die for our sins. He rose from the dead. And they're all like on the same page finally and not sticking their foot in their mouth. The Holy Spirit comes in power. And man, it's like, whoa, revival's happening in the first two chapters of Acts. And read the rest of Acts. Some of them are dead before you get to the end of it. People are, people are being... Um, Paul comes along and he gets saved. Everything's going great for Paul. And then he's, he's snake-bitten and he's shipwrecked and he's ultimately beheaded, most likely, in Rome. It's not just smooth sailing after everything. It, beware of that thought. We're always facing opposition. Now, not only are we always facing opposition, number two, opposition manifests itself in various ways. And we see that in the text. It's kind of like when you're in a war, you've got an air attack, you, you, you can attack by the sea. You can send ground troops and attack on the ground. And even nowadays they have cyber attacks, right? You've got all kinds of ways that we can, and you can attack in a war. And in the same way, Satan's got a lot of ways he'll come against you. The world and the flesh have a lot of ways that it will come against you. And many times, just as with Nehemiah, there will be people right in the center of it. Many times motivated by selfish reasons, as Symbolic was. Notice the types of opposition they faced here. There's two main types that we're going to see here. The first one's an external opposition, and the next one we're going to see is an internal opposition in your own heart. The external opposition, the first one we see is ridicule. That's obvious in verses 1 through 5 when they're ridiculing the Jews out of just sheer hatred. They're feeble, unable to do the work, taunting the quality of the work. The point here is that they hate them and they, they hate the work they're doing. And remember, this is God's work, God's will, God's kingdom. They're not just opposing the Jews, they're opposing God. It's manifesting itself in opposition against the Jews who are rebuilding. And many times, God's people, when doing God's will, will face ridicule from the world. You're pro-life? Do you hate women? You believe marriage is between one man and one woman alone? Do you hate homosexuals? You believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Are you that narrow-minded and just stupid? You believe in creation? Are you just intellectually inferior to the rest of us? Everybody doesn't attack things that way. But many people in the world come at you with that angle and you're just stating a belief, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, what's going on here? Ridicule. Many times people may ridicule moral behavior, theological beliefs, ethical stances. They may also ridicule our work. You may also have them ridicule you personally and attack your character. Notice, Nehemiah and the folks, this ridicule was simply for obeying God. They were just doing what they were doing. And they had the king's permission. They weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't being mean to these people. They were just doing God's will. So, listen, if you're, if you're ridiculed for being a jerk, that's on you. That's not on Jesus. Don't drag Him into that. If you just can't be nice to people, I'm serious. If we can't share our views in a way that is loving and that is gracious and that is patient, if you come across as hateful and condescending and all that, and you get ridiculed, that's not persecution. It's karma. Just kidding. That's... <laughs> That's you. You caused that. We caused that. And we can do that because we have that thing called the flesh. They also face intimidation and persecution. Because in verses 7 and 8, it goes beyond verbal and it gets physical. We're going to fight against them. We're going to take them out. We're going to kill them. Just as in Nehemiah's day, Christians today face the threat of actual... uh, threat of physical persecution and intimidation many times. This is meant to stop the doing of what we would per se as God's will. Jesus promised us we'd face persecution. Peter told us to be surprised when, not to be surprised when fiery trials come upon us, was Peter's words. Paul tells us that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So persecution's gonna happen. Physical persecution can very well happen. We've been very fortunate in our nation. But it can also come in other ways. We've got the extremes that we've mentioned, like ISIS, but just the, the, the slow ebbing and winnowing away of religious freedom in our own nation. These are all ways that it begins to, the intimidation and the persecution and creating an environment for these things begin to happen. But they also face lies and slander. When you get over to chapter 6, 
when the enemies realize all the, that's left is doors and gates to put up and they begin to get desperate, they go directly after Nehemiah. And they first lie to him to come meet with them when really they they insinuating it's a friendly meeting, they want to kill him. In chapter 6, verse 5, after repeated tries to meet, they finally send an open letter with a slanderous lie in it that we mentioned. It stated that the Jews were planning to rebel and that Nehemiah wanted to be the king and accused him of actually having prophets prophesy that he was supposed to be the king. And the purpose of the lying and the purpose of this slander, this untrue thing about Nehemiah, was to cause fear because if the Persian king heard about this, Nehemiah would be a traitor, the Jews would be traitors, and he would surely send people to attack them and take them out. And the open letter made sure the rumor, the lie, and the slander spread. And they were actually, of all things, they were taking the Jews' messianic theology and they were using it against them. Because everybody knew they was hoping for a king. Everybody knew they wanted a Messiah. This had already been written. This had already been prophesied about. And this is another type of opposition that Christians face today. You ever had anyone assault your character? Accuse you of something that wasn't even true? Run your name through the mud in order to make you look bad or intimidate you out of something or to make themselves look better? The Bible teaches that Satan is a liar and a murderer and the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. These are his tactics. Lies and slander and accusing. These are, these are things Satan does. This is how Satan operates. It's 101. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we're lied about and we're slandered against and those things happen and they do happen. Temptation is the other type of external thing we see happening here. In verses 10 through 14... They have this, probably a priest, likely possibly a priest who was acting as a false prophet, try and tempt Nehemiah into something sinful and really just stupid. He encourages Nehemiah to meet him in the house of God so as to hide and escape the threat of the enemies. He, hey, they're coming to get you, so go with me. And this guy must have had access, that's why some people believe he was a priest, he must have had access to the temple. Go with me into the temple and you'll be safe there because they surely won't come in there, in other words. The problem was, Number one, Nehemiah had been rallying the people to fight, to stand up for themselves, and to, and to allow the Lord to fight for them. So what's it look like when he tucks and runs? And the other thing is, he's not allowed to go in the temple. He doesn't, he doesn't fit the qualifications of what it means to do this, so he dropped dead on the spot. So he's sinning, and he's kind of doubling sinning. It's a type of fear that would have been anti-faith, a, a sinful fear, and on top of that, just flat out disobeying God's Word. He was being tempted to compromise his relationship with the people there in Israel and he was being tempted to compromise his relationship with God. Maybe you face that kind of temptation. We have our own false prophets today and not just the kind you see on TV. It may come in the form of just the media and movies and friends and co-workers. Those that would tempt you to fear that if you don't act in a certain way, they, they try to sell you a lie. So things will be easier on you. So you feel safer and more secure. And we see that in our culture. And we see that when we face those kind of temptations. Now here's the thing. When all this external going on, the internal begins. The first, and what I mean by internal, this is stuff that arises from within you, which temptation can, by the way. The Bible teaches us that. But here's three clear ones. Discouragement. As the physical threat lingered, the people became more and more discouraged. We talked about them singing country music, right? The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. They're discouraged. They're beginning to see the rubble, but they can no longer see the wall. All they see is a pile of bricks. Right? It was easy to see that. It was hard to envision the wall because the wall wasn't up yet. And so it was a lot easier to see the pile of bricks everywhere because they're discouraged at what's going on. And we can be tempted to discouragement when we get focused on our circumstances and not what God's called us to. We begin to think about the bad things we've endured, the setbacks, the lack of progress in whatever in our life. And we begin to think, man, I've just got too far to go. And we begin to get discouraged. Doubt. That's another one. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. They're starting to doubt that they'll even be able to finish. And they're right. By themselves, they can't do it. They're forgetting they're not by themselves. The whole point of, the whole theme of Nehemiah is that the hand of the Lord was upon them. The hand of the Lord was with them. They wasn't, they weren't alone. But we battle doubt when we focus on our abilities instead of God's ability. Right? When we focus on what we can do in our strength instead of what God is able to do in His strength and His power. And the third one's fear. Throughout this, we see that they were trying to incite fear. That was the big mega theme, really. The opposition's trying to get them to fear. Fear death. Fear the king. And there's no doubt that the people had to battle the temptation to fear. That's why Nehemiah stands up and says, Do not fear. Fear is especially dangerous. I, I consider fear what you call... You know, you talk about gateway drugs. Fear is a gateway sin. And it's a sin. But certain types of fear is a sin because the Bible commands us to not fear. It's the most common command in the Bible. 
Repeat it more than anything else. More than believe, the Bible says do not fear. Fear is anti-faith, right? It's, it, and it's a gateway sin. The reason I say that is it emboldens you to other sins. It affects other things. In chapter 6, if Nehemiah had given in to fear, he would have compromised his reputation with the people. He would have sinned by going into the temple. It would have caused the chain effects of other sin in his life started by fear. Fear affects our moral choices. What will people think? And so we do something we shouldn't do. We sin before we sin. Community. Will they like me? If we begin to press into community and try to get involved and serve, will this person like me? And we begin to fear. And it will keep us out of community. Keep us off mission. Well, I want to share the gospel with them, but what if they reject me? What if I fail? What if I get it wrong? What if, what if, what if, what if? Stewardship? What if I run out of money? How can I be a good steward? How can I be generous? What if I don't have enough money? See, fear will paralyze your walk. It will paralyze the church's work because it tempts us to multiple avenues of rebellion against God. It gives you a lot of outs and none of them are obedience. It says, here's five other paths. It's a gateway. Now, the third thing we see here, and this is what we, this is where the real takeaway is. How can we persevere in the face of opposition? Because they persevered. They got the wall built. You get to verse 15 of chapter 6. The wall's finished in 52 days, right? I mean, they, they persevered. I mean, these people, they, they could take a punch. You know, one of my favorite movies growing up, I love the Rocky movies. And Rocky's thing was not that he was like the hardest puncher, the fastest guy. He was shorter than like everybody else he fought. I mean, Sylvester Sloan's really short. So usually he was like in like booster shoes or something. And so, you know, so he, he, he's down there and he's fighting these huge people that would normally beat him up. And he would just get pummeled. Do you remember that? I mean, he would get beat for like 15 rounds. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden the music would start playing. Right? And he's got, you know, and then, and then he comes after him and he ends up winning. Right? Because, and what was his greatest quality? It was perseverance. That's why he won so much. Opposed to that, one of my favorite video games as a kid was Mike Tyson's Punch-Out! on the Nintendo. Right? And the first person you fought in to get to Mike Tyson was a guy named Glass Joe. Right? And glass Jaw, Glass Joe. He couldn't take a punch. Right? He was the easiest guy to beat. Right? You just hit him a couple of times and boom, he's over. He's the first, first level you had to get past. The difference, perseverance. Right? Nehemiah could take a punch. God, God's people here could, could take a punch. And if we're going to be successful, for lack of a better word, if we're going to persevere in the Christian life, we have to be able to take a punch. We have to be able to get up and keep on going. The key to their perseverance was the Lord. His hand was upon them. But there are some very basic tools that tap them into what the Lord was doing and wanting to do in their life. The first one was prayer. We see constantly throughout this book, if one of the major themes of this book is prayer. When a problem rose up, they didn't just go to work, they went to pray. You constantly are reading Nehemiah's prayers. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he faced injustice and he prayed for justice. In verse 9, a war may happen, they're coming to fight us, so he and the Jews pray. Chapter 6, verse 9, he's tempted to fear, he prays for God to strengthen his hands. Chapter 6, verse 14, he begins to pray for the justice again when injustice comes against him. The people that handle opposition, whether that be in the form of persecution or temptation or whatever it may be, are praying people. The people that handle it well. The people that persevere. Do you pray when opposition comes your way? See, if we aren't praying when these things happen, we're fighting in our strength. And we're sure to grow weary. What's your instinct when you get that phone call, when you receive that, that temptation, when you face opposition? What is your instinct? Where do you go? Is it prayer? That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is wisdom. That's another big theme in this book. He didn't just pray, he acted wisely. That might even be a better way to say it. It was wise action. He planned, he prepared. In verse 9 of chapter 4, they didn't just pray. When they heard that they may be attacked, they set a guard up. Verses 13 and 14, he stations people in strategic places. In verses 15 to 20, he puts together this very great plan. Of the people working at the same time being on guard. It's just wisdom. Listen, listen. this is not because he didn't have a lack of faith. Making wise plans and doing wise things is not a lack of faith. It just means you're not stupid. <laughs> it's common sense. And it's okay to use the, the noggin, okay, that the Lord gave us to just be wise and to, and to do common sense things. And that means if, if I can get the temptation out of my life, then I can just get the temptation out of my life. That means there may be certain places I don't go, certain things I don't do, certain things I don't go near it, just because why even put the temptation there? It's just wisdom. If I get sick, I, go, I pray. And if I'm sick enough, I go to the doctor. And those two things are not 
You can do both. If you're tempted to morally, you can pray, but you can also put up guardrails in your life. Prayer is not an excuse for a lack of wise strategic planning and execution in our lives. It's not. But it wasn't just prayer. It wasn't just wisdom, wise action. Another, I mean, a really important one here is perspective. They kept perspective. In verse 14 of chapter 4, after the people are discouraged and doubting, they are listening to their country music all the time and all that, he doesn't just give a wise plan. He resets their perspective. Do not be afraid of them, he says. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. They needed to be reminded who God was. They needed to be reminded of what was at stake. Because there's always more at stake than just us. In chapter 6, when he was asked to go to Ono to meet Samballot, he says no. And the reason he gives is, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come to you? In other words, he's got perspective. This guy who used to have this high big time job with the king, who's now back building this wall that most of the world didn't care about, he realizes he's doing a great work because he's doing God's work. He's doing kingdom work. He's got perspective. Nehemiah was a man who had an instilled perspective in others. He knew that what he was doing was more than building a wall. He was doing God's will. And so were the people. He instilled that in them. Remember the Lord, he says. He reminded them, God is our God is great and awesome. You need perspective and understanding who the Lord is. Our circumstances, the threats that we're facing is what he's telling them. They don't compare to who God is. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Might have been a verse he would have quoted to them. He also reminded them of what was at stake. It was bigger than themselves. Your family's at stake here. This is, we're doing a great work. A lot's going on. I liken it to that boxer getting rocked because he's getting, been knocked upside the head and now he's a little bit dizzy and he's got to, got to, he's got to get his perspective back, right? Get his balance back. And that's what he's doing here. He's helping them get balance. He's helping them to see and to understand what reality is. Because it's real easy to lose perspective of reality when the circumstances are no longer going our way. Have you lost your perspective this morning of who God is? What you're doing? What's at stake? Are you tempted to discouragement and doubt and fear? And might I remind you that the God of the Bible is the great and awesome God and that your circumstances are not bigger than He. If you're tempted to distraction, the nations may rage, cultures may pressure you, presidents and governors may one day threaten you, but we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we've been called to lay down our lives to advance not our kingdom but His. God's gospel. The gospel of the great and awesome God, in the words of Nehemiah. And the last thing, and the most important thing, is their faith. In verse 20, the key verse probably to the whole section is this. Our God will fight for us. That was something very similar. That's what Moses told the people right before the whole parting of the Red Sea. Come and watch. Our God will fight for us. This, this was a theme that Israel was used to hearing. They could confidently go about their work because they trusted God to fight for them. They were doing God's will. And God's will would not be forwarded. It's the, the great and awesome God who's fighting for them. That's faith. Now, God's fighting for them didn't mean they didn't have to fight. He's going to blow a trumpet. They're going to rally through that place. Not to just... They're going to fight. That's why they have swords. He said, hear the trumpet. Rally there. They're going to fight but with the understanding that the victory is going to come from God. And they're going to fight with faith. See, they've heard the stories. They've heard the stories. But they're a century removed from really good stories. They've heard how God delivered them from Pharaoh and split the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian army. How Joshua had led the Israelites to march around the city of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. And they probably think, well, if God can knock walls down, He can probably make one go up. Right? They, they know the stories. They had heard the stories of victory and that had built their faith. And Nehemiah's faith was grounded in the God of the Bible who had fought for His people time and time again. And they knew these stories. They knew them before, long before we knew them. And now they're living a story. Their time in history where God's going to fight for them. See, we have more reason for confident faith than they did. We have the same story, right? we got those stories. We've got those stories of, of how, what God did with, uh, with Jericho and what God did at the Exodus. We've got all those stories. But we've even got mother, other stories. We know how their story ends. They didn't even know yet. We know how that one ends. And we know that sometime later, God sent Jesus. That our great and awesome God took the form of a little baby boy 
and grew up as a man and faced all the opposition that you could ever think to face. He was ridiculed and slandered and lied about. He was persecuted verbally and physically. He was tempted. He even went toe-to-toe with Satan himself in the desert and resisted the temptation. Lied about, schemed on, plotted against, crucified and ultimately killed. But we know, because we have God's Word, that this was God's plan and that Jesus was willingly laying down His life for us and it was for our sin that He faced all these things and that He suffered and that He died. But then we know three days later what? He rose from the dead, giving victory over sin, death, and hell. And now when you and I place our faith in Him and we're joined with Him and our identity is with Him, we don't just have the story of it, yet Jesus died for us. No, we have His victory. And now we face opposition with known victory. We, we know how the story's going to end because Jesus has secured the end. We know our God fights for us because there's no better depiction of it than what Jesus did on the cross. We have a better story. And maybe today you don't know Jesus because there's really only two sides. There's sand ballots, selfish, self-absorbed, my kingdom, my way, and there's the side represented by Nehemiah and the kingdom of God. And every single one of us, we're in one of two camps. And we all start out as Sanballat. Every single one of us. No exceptions to that rule. We're all born seeking to advance our own kingdom. We're all sinners. The way of self and the way of our kingdom dominates our life. And then Jesus offers us salvation and offers us the way out of that. And offers us His kingdom and offers us forgiveness and offers us restoration with God through Him, through the cross. Chapter four, verse sixteen tells us that when chapter six, verse sixteen tells us that when the enemies had heard that the that the wall went up, that the nations were afraid because they understood God had helped them. Their God helped them do this. The people who had tried to incite fear are now afraid. A great reversal has taken place. Do you see it? That the, that the very people who were bullying are now all of a sudden they're the ones that are shaking in their boots. And listen, this is a picture of us. There is a great reversal that is coming. Jesus is coming back, and those that oppose Him will one day find out that they're the ones on the wrong side of history. But now's the day of repentance, right? Now's the day of salvation. And, and we fight, and we build, and we serve, and we love, and we do all these things. And in the face of temptation and opposition of all types, we know that there's coming a day that our victory will be fully realized with God's help. Because we know how the story ends. We know that when we face turbulence and the plane gets rocky, we know who's flying the plane. And we know where the plane's going. And we know we've got the end of the story. But sometimes we lose perspective of that when we're in the midst of the story. So let me ask you this morning. First of all, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would hope today that you consider the claims of Christ and that you would realize that the good news of the Bible is is that while there is a kingdom of darkness and there is a kingdom of light, the very king of light, the very king of glory has stepped into this world and stepped into the darkness of this world to, do, to redeem sinners like us and that you can have a relationship with Him through faith. If you're a Christian today, it's my hope that maybe the Lord would encourage you today to persevere. Maybe it's your prayer life that needs work. Maybe you need to build your faith, and that's done through reading the Word of God. Maybe you need your perspective shaped. Maybe you need some wise action in your life. Maybe you need to realize that just lifting things up to the Lord is not an excuse to not go and do the things that you know that He wants you to do. How would God have you to apply this message today as you face opposition in your walk with God?